Athletics Forum. And before I introduce our speaker, I just want to thank the British Society of Aesthetics for its continued generous funding of this series. Um, our speaker today is Effie, I'm going to mess this up, Kiprianadu. Excellent. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, who uh, is currently in, Cy is it the University of Cyprus? It's the Open University it's of Cyprus. It's the Open University of Cyprus. Um, who got her PhD in philosophy at the University of Athens, but also has an MA in history and philosophy of science and technology, as well as an MA in cultural management. Um, and Effie, uh, I think this is closely related to the work that you do with Compassion. So Effie is one of the organizers of Compassion, which is a nonprofit volunteer-run arts collective in Athens, Nicosia, and Hamburg that organizes philosophers, artists, cultural managers, academics, and other disciplines to put together um, projects related to getting people to engage in compassion, as the name suggests, for people with chronic illnesses. Um, and Effie has curated, say, more than one, several yes. photography and other art installation exhibits um, in these different um, cities and in different um, forums. And so her work today is closely related to that work, which has a really interesting practical dimension in addition to being philosophically interesting to those of us who have been thinking about empathy in response to art. And the topic here is the case of illness-related artwork. Thanks, Aki. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you all for being here. I hope that you can put up with my accent uh, for a few time. Uh, I'm afraid I was so happy uh, to be invited that I prepared a lot of material, but uh, uh, fortunately, a friend of mine warned me that you invited me and not Fidel Castro, so I will try to be <laughs> rather quick. Uh, so um, I will read because that would be better for you. Uh, Illness-related art can be found throughout time. However, neither research in art history nor in philosophy of art have adequately addressed the central question of how art can contribute to the understanding of the phenomenology of illness. The present paper aims to discuss how pictorial arts that refer to the state of illness can offer a different kind of knowledge about what it is like to be ill through the activation of empathic imagination. Being ill is described by medical disorders as a state of pathological dysfunction of the body, while the experience of illness, that is, what it is like being in a state of illness, involves the disruption of everyday activities, the loss of capacities that until the onset of illness were exercised without being noticed, as for example the loss of taste during chemotherapy, and of course bodily and psychological pain. Illness and the consequent suffering brought on not just by the symptoms, but also from aggressive treatments and side effects of drugs, is a situation that terrifies, that arouses pity, but that is not well understood from a phenomenological point of view. Is it possible to gain an understanding and a kind of access to somebody else's experience of illness through pictorial artworks? And what would be the process for that? Can we consider empathic responses to art as a way for understanding the phenomenology of witness? We know that pictorial artworks can convey propositional knowledge about events and people. 
Moreover, the content of some paintings can serve as historical evidence. For example, Caravaggio's uh, self-portrait, a sick vacuus, provide evidence that Caravaggio suffered from jaundice, as well as evidence of the external signs of it, uh, such as the flesh uh, tints or the slight tinge of yellow in the sclera. Others argue that artworks afford another kind of knowledge, phenomenal knowledge, that is knowledge about what it is like to be in a given situation, or experiential knowledge. Illness-related arts can provoke however, uh, painful emotional reactions. Uh, take, for instance, uh, Mike Nichols' film uh, Wit, in which uh, a professor is diagnosed with uh, terminal ovarian cancer. Uh, the film critic uh, Roger Debert has titled his review of the film as uh, When a Movie Hurts Too Much. Likewise, pictorial arts such as painting or, or photography, uh, for example, Ferdinand Hodler's uh, <coughs> paintings of his wife during her illness, or more recently, uh, 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 Joe Spence's photographic representation of her struggle with cancer. These are all uh, uh, artworks that um, may distress the viewers. As Meskin and Weinberg note, fictions can and frequently do elicit affective responses that feel substantive from the first-person perspective. It is also possible that some illness-related artworks provoke an emotional reaction that enhances to the viewer a sense of first-personal perspective about what it is like to be in a state of illness. For example, in seeing Eugene Smith's photograph Tomoko Emura in her bath, I come to have an experience of Tomoko suffering from minimata, a disease caused by mercury poisoning that left her blind, deaf, and with useless legs. I see her deformed body, I perceive the agony of her blindness and deafness, and I sense her mother's pain and compassion for her child. I may even get the sense that I am holding Tomoko in my arms. It seems that there is a triggering of imagination or a kind of perception that can eventually lead to a different way of understanding the content of the picture. In what follows, um, I will refer to ways of empathic encounter with artworks that can afford this kind of non-propositional experiential knowledge or phenomenological knowledge. Uh, I have formulated the main philosophical questions concerning empathic response to artworks as follows. What is the intentional object of empathic response to an artwork? How can we intelligibly empathize with fictional or depicted characters, given that we do not believe in their existence, and thus we do not believe that they really have emotions? A question that is, of course, part of the so-called paradox of fiction. How and why do we respond empathically towards artworks that do not involve depicted figures? such as artworks that depict landscapes. Do empathic responses arise in an immediate, direct way, or are they the result of an inferential process? Do we empathically re respond to artworks in the same way as we respond to real people and situations, or is there a distinctive pictorial way of empathic response? 
Answers to these questions depend to a great extent on the conception of empathy employed. I will first outline three main approaches on how to think about empathic responses, which stem from theory theory, simulation theory, and phenomenological approaches. Having this discussion as background is necessary to critically review different, kind of, different kinds of empathic responses and sketch a conception appropriate to depictive arts that mediates between simulation theories and phenomenological approaches. According to what is known as the theory theory, we somehow acquire a theory of the mental realm, uh, a folk psychological theory which we deploy in order to understand or predict one's behavior. Um, theory theorists hold that we, get, that we get access to other minds by means of a knowledge-rich mechanism with which we inferentially connect psychological generalizations with information about another person's behavior uh, in order to explain, interpret, or predict one's mental state. Uh, since the 80s, the dominant theory of understanding other minds has been under pressure from simulation approaches that argue for a knowledge-poor mechanism that allows one to use oneself as a model for the other uh, person's mental life. For simulationists, empathy is attained by means of, of perspective shifting, that is, by imagining being in the other person's shoes and therefore using oneself's mental state to simulate another person's cognitive and affective state. For the simulationists, all empathic responses are primarily simulations. I quote from Curry, Having thus projected myself imaginatively into that situation, I then imagined how I would respond to it. But crucially, this process of imagining how I would respond is not a matter of my calculating how I would respond by appeal to rough and ready principle of, principles of mental functioning. I simply note that I formed in imagination a, a certain belief, desire, or decision then attributed to the other. End of quote. Simulation accounts have received significant support from research on, on mirror neurons and neuroscientific work on empathy. The discovery of a special class of neurons that are activated both when we perform some action, such as grasping an object, or experience an emotion, fear or disgust, or when we observe others perform the same action or experience the same emotion, is taken as evidence of a low-level simulative mechanism that seems to neurologically verify that one's own state functions as a model for the other's mental state. These mechanisms are, of course, active below the threshold of consciousness. However, their exact relation to the more complex forms of mind reading and whether and in what way mirroring mechanisms provide cognitive access to the other's emotional state is still heatedly debated. So uh, simulation theorists have come to propose two accounts of empathy, one involving a conscious imaginative process, an imaginative reconstruction or reenactment of the other person's experience uh, that involves various subconscious forms of direct responsiveness, uh, apologize, and one other, another um, account of empathy that involves various subconscious forms of direct responsiveness to the mental state of the others. 
a primitive low-level mind reading, uh, according to Goldman, or according to Stuber, a basic empathy. A third way of thinking about empathic responses comes from the phenomenologists who argue for non-simulationist accounts of empathy, suggesting that empathy should be seen as a mode of perception or as providing experiential access to other minds. Drawing on the work of Husserl, Stein and Scheller, phenomenologists reject as utterly Cartesian the idea that we cannot directly and immediately experience other minds. According to this line of thinking, simulation accounts impose an unnecessary step in the experience of empathizing, in that they take empathy as a mirror plus projection or ascription process. Thus, access to the other's emotional state is seen as mediated by one's own inner state, in that one empathizes with another's emotional state in virtue of being in the same emotional state herself. Zahavi argues that both theory theory and simulation in fact preclude experience of the emotional or mental state of the other, because according to these approaches, experiential access relies, uh, needs to rely either to theoretical inferences or to internal simulations thereby making access to other states an egocentric affair and holding the empathizer imprisoned in her own mind. So, um, for phenomenologists admit that um, uh, what they propose is a low-level empathy uh, that relies on a face-to-face -face process, a response to the uh, observed bodily and behavioral expression of the others. This approach uh, supposedly eschews behaviorism since mental states are directly apprehended in the bodily expressions of people whose mental states they are. And they are not kept hidden and invisible in the mind, thereby making it necessary for one to infer from the other's bodily expression that she is in this or that mental state. For the phenomenologies, emotions always permit the bodily and behavioral expression of the others. Therefore, one does not need to either simulate the other's emotional state or, inf or infer it. Despite the fact that simulation theory and phenomenology approach regard basic uh, or low-level empathy as resulting from either quasi-perceptual or uh, perceptual mechanisms, they both see it as a kind of automatic response offering a rather narrow access to the other's mental state. For example, uh, Stuber argues that basic empathy alone does not explain and predict a person's behavior in complex social situations, uh, something that is only achieved by reenactive empathy or the use of our cognitive and deliberative capacities. From the phenomenologist's point of view, even though empathy involves a direct access to the other's emotional experience as belonging to the other, this is nonetheless regarded as incomplete and limited, and therefore for a deeper kind of understanding, 
theoretical inferences and imaginative simulations might be needed. It is, of course, notoriously difficult to reach a consensus on the definition of empathy, a notion that has almost as many definitions as, as the philosophers dealing with it. <laughs> I sometimes think that the same way is, uh, holds about culture. Uh, some very brave people counted 140, uh, 154 meanings of culture. And I think that empathy would have to be something <laughs> analogous. <laughs> One thought is that the difficulties uh, arise because empathy cannot be considered as an effective state per se. That's what I thought. Uh, I mean, we cannot think of empathy regardless of the affective states that simulates or involves. We should rather regard it as the result of the process of experiencing someone else's emotional state. So as, as uh, Figgin said, it, it's a success term that describes the achievement to somehow feel what the other person is feeling. There's also a great confusion between uh, other uh, related terms such as sympathy, uh, personal distress, pity, and compassion. Um, Partly this is because of the way uh, empathy uh, was, um, um, was dubbed. Uh, it, 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 it's um, from the English word Einfühlung, um, the, the German word, uh, apologize, that it was translated in English as empathy uh, to refer to something uh, that is uh, closer to sympathy. Um, so, uh, sympathy, which comes, of course, from um, ancient Greek, uh, describes probably better what uh, we want to say, but um, empathy uh, has, uh, I don't know, uh, mixed, uh, complicated uh, the discussion. Um, We should also, another problem in the discussion is that um, not every tear or heartbeat about the other is empathic in nature. As Goodman points, what is expressed is not necessarily the feeling or emotion aroused in the viewer. Moreover, it is not the case that every emotion expressed induces feelings or emotions to the viewer. Uh, for example, Hodler's Valentine Gottarell in her bed um, is retching. The suffering Valentine has turned her face towards us, breathing heavily, as her parted lip seems to reveal. Uh, the yellowish, yellowish scene forming the background, as well as tinting her face, conduces to the feeling of being ill and the sadness expressed. In seeing Hodler's painting, one will most likely respond emotionally, one will may undergo feelings that uh, we can describe as sad for the terminal ill. In this viewer, in this case, the viewer is sympathetic to the fictional character, um, since she understands that the figure is suffering or how disease has affected her life. Although the emotional response comprises the understanding of what the fictional character may be feeling or thinking, it does not involve imagining being in the other's shoes or being the other or imagining being in a similar situation. It is rather a siding with the other. This is sympathy. 
Goldie uh, holds that pity and compassion are emotions of the same sort as sympathy. They are understood as responses to another's misfortune or suffering. Um, sympathy is sometimes understood as also involving responses to another's joy or good fortune. Uh, this was the primary uh, sense of sympathy in ancient uh, Greek. It, it referred also uh, to uh, positive uh, feelings towards somebody else. According to Nussbaum, both sympathy and compassion include a judgment that the other person's distressing situation or, su or suffering is bad. Um, so um, for Nussbaum, what can be regarded as a difference between sympathy and compassion in their contemporary usage is that the latter seems to express a more intense emotion and suggests suffering of a greater extent. Moreover, compassion requires the recognition of one's own vulnerability and may suggest a greater tendency to act in order to aid the sufferer. Pity, on the other hand, has come to have nuances of one's own superiority or even disdain for the sufferer state. So um, sympathy, compassion, and pity are emotions, unlike empathy, which is considered as a psychological or imaginative process. According to Hoffman, empathy refers to psychological processes that allow a person to experience feelings more congruent with another person's situation than with, than with his own situation. Empathy as an imaginative process can be regarded, according to Goldie, and I quote, as an acting in your head, where the actor starts with a characterization of the role he is to play, and then he acts out the narrative, sticking to the spirit of the script, if not necessarily to its letter. There's also a condition for awareness of the self-other differentiation. differentiation. Uh, uh, there's the need that we're always, that the empathizer is always aware that one is not oneself the sufferer. Uh, this is necessary uh, since uh, if awareness uh, of the self-other differentiation is lost, then uh, we end up uh, with um, experiencing our own unpleasant or painful emotions and becoming preoccupied uh, with our experience and with finding, one's, uh, finding ways to uh, escape it. So personal distress is uh, actually this state of losing the self-other differentiation, and it's a kind of empathy gone bad. Now, um, the question, uh, my initial question is, can pictorial works really arouse emotional or even some kind of loosely defined empathic responses? In other words, do we experience genuine affective states in seeing an artwork? And what's more, is it possible that these affective responses resonate or match the emotions of the depicted figure or the depicted scenes expressed emotions? Um, I was planning to say a lot about the paradox of fiction, but I will not say uh, many. I will just say that um, 
I think that, that my view is that it is possible to have a genuine ex emotional experience to fiction. Um, as Noel Carroll has argued, entertaining thoughts can arouse emotional responses. Um, I think that we have uh, two uh, arguments to support this idea. The first is that um, uh, the, the first argument comes from uh, the, the phenomenology of our emotional engagement with artworks. It seems that we do not pretend to fear, uh, for example, or terrify when watching a, a horror film. Um, and our emotional responses are not the, res the result of a deliberate decision to engage in a pretend play, uh, as uh, Walton has uh, proposed. And moreover, we seem to have little, if any, control over the emotions we experience. So, uh, for example, when I watched uh, the film Wit, I was really wretched for Vivian's bearing suffering. I sympathized with her struggling to keep her uh, self-respect. I had a genuine desire that her suffering would end. And my emotional response was almost uncontrollable. I dreaded the end and weeping to, during most of the film. However, no, uh, however uh, I'm sorry, uh, no matter how I reminded myself that this was only fictional. Vivian's experience of illness was present and real and so my emotional response to it. But uh, we have also empirical research from neuroscience that explore engagement with fiction and the nature of emotional responses to fiction. In a recent study, Sperduti et al. Uh, show that fiction-generated emotions are physically robust, robust, as indicated by a physiological arousal comparable to responses to real material, and can be seen as genuine emotions. Actually, Sperduti found that only in the subjective intensity and valence rating was the emotional response to fiction material weaker. In other words, the subjects of the experiment differentiated their responses regarding the perceived intensity and violence of the emotion after being asked to rate each scene they had seen, and moreover, rated as to the degree of personal memory linked to the scene. So what I'm trying to say is that the modulation of the emotional response to fiction takes place at the personal level where it is possibly affected by correlations with personal memories, while at the neuropsychological level, responses are quite similar. Analogous results were found previously by Goldstein, who conducted a psychological research in which the subjects were shown films presented as fiction or non-fiction and were asked to rate their emotional responses to films. Goldstein found that their emotional responses were equivalent as to the degree of sadness and anxiety towards fictional and non-fictional film clips. I think that Goldstein's study, however, faces some methodological difficulties, such as the use of fictional films that were presented as true. For example, she showed them scenes uh, from Kramer versus, versus Kramer, and she told them that this is based on uh, real um, events. And that was supposed to be the uh, real uh, instance of the experiment. 
Um, on the other hand, there are studies presenting evidence for a top-down, higher-level cognitive modulation of emotional responses to pain. For example, Singer found that when the participants of the experiment saw people who thought uh, of as being unfair receiving pain stimuli, uh, the subjects of the experiment showed less or none activation of the pain network in fMRI. In an analogous experiment by Lam, uh, the participant had less activation in pain-related areas when they believed that the pain inflicted to the observer, um, uh, that pain inflicted to the observer other, uh, was due to their own benefit. They told them that the pain that you see caused is to cure them. And in this case, the participant had less activation in brain-related areas. So uh, we have here some empirical evidence that seem to be incompatible. For on the one hand, we have studies that show that even if we believe that what one is seeing uh, or reading is fictional, one nevertheless subliminally perceives the other's emotions um, since one's phys physical reactions do not appear to be different. And on the other hand, we have other studies suggesting that emotional responses are modulated by higher level cognitive abilities, top-down beliefs and judgment. So one could argue that what we believe about and depicted or fictional character shapes how we respond emotionally to it up to a certain level, in the sense that bodily and physiological responses do not seem to be affected. So we have a kind of cognitive impenetrability. This is, for example, what uh, Noel Carroll um, supports. Uh, another uh, way of thinking to avoid the, this supposed incompatibility uh, would be to argue that thoughts about the fictional character mis uh, character's uh, state equally penetrate emotional responses. So our belief that what we see or read is fictional prevents us from reacting behaviorally towards what we see, but our thinking or imagining about them elicits our emotional response. Uh, now, um, importantly though, scientific research uh, may provide indications to deal with a philosophical problem even though its aim was to answer a different question. For example, uh, let me briefly explain what I mean. All these studies uh, accounting for emotion sharing using measures of facial electromyography or uh, fMRI studies indicate, um, or, and, and indicating um, uh, evidence about empathy, uh, use uh, pictures as their material. So, for example, um, in uh, electromyography studies, uh, participants are exposed to pictures of happy or angry facial expressions. In, neuro, in, in using uh, functional neuroimages uh, studies, um, they use uh, visual stimuli from uh, films depicted, uh, depicting painful or non-painful situations. So, although these and other relevant studies were conducted to study the role of basic somatoric uh, motor resonance in the primitive building block of empathy, 
researchers actually used pictorial depictions as objects purporting to trigger affective sharing. My point then is that a great deal of neuropsychological research regarding empathy rests upon the tacit assumption that our response to the other's emotional or mental state is not differentiated either in seeing others face to face or in seeing their depiction. So I think what is safe to conclude is that, the studies exam is, is that what the studies examine in the first place is the role of pictorial depictions in the generation of resonance or empathy. So these neuropsychological studies show that we are genetically programmed to respond effectively to depiction and suggest one type of lower level response towards depicted figure, figures or situation that I will hereafter refer to as plain physiological response to pictorial artworks. So, um, person A is involuntarily permitted by depicted figures B emotions or depicted scene S's expressed emotions, while A is not aware that A's own bodily feeling response is related to B or S's expressed emotions. This approach has its, as its outcome a kind of a state of picking up or contagion. So uh, this can be defined as the viewer's engagement with a depictive artwork in a low level or mirroring way. Responses of this type are hardwired reflex reactions, automatic simulations of facial expression, vocalization, postures, and movements of the depicted fixtures, figure. Sorry. The observation of a pictorially represented emotion elicits the activation of analogous motor re representation in the observer. Thus, the observer non-consciously picks up an indeterminated feeling, such as a vague annoyance, that is not, however, directed at a specific object or directly relates to the artwork. So picking up does not involve full-blown emotions although it can initiate, it, initiate emotional or empathic responses or can have a non-conscious effect on emotional responses as a kind of response priming. Uh, this tendency to imitate uh, facial and other behavior is already found in newborns, as that is shown, and um, adults, the latter exposed to pictures of, cap or, of happy or angry facial expressions. So the various sub-imaginative forms of direct responsiveness to the mental state of the depicted, such as contagion and mimicry, may initiate and or enhance empathy. Uh, Carol also refers to a similar type of response to fiction as mirror reflexes. However, he seems to allow rather easily for mirror reflexes to affect the conscious level by saying that they provide us with valuable clues to the nature of, of that state by providing us with an experiential sense of the bodily component, the feeling state of the occurring emotion of the other person. However, the idea that mirror reflexes can supply us with clues seems to me problemat problematic 
for that would seem that we already see them as part of the space of reasons, unless we make it clear that they are unspecific hints and not reasons. In my view, this is a lot to ask, for, to ask from mirror reflexes, this kind of since this kind of responding does not necessarily involve awareness that one uh, Uh, this is why I think a plain physiological response to pictorial artworks cannot be regarded as empathic, no matter whether one's uh, considered these automatic responses as real emotions or not, because they are not directed towards um, the other. So um, emotional responses that are empathic in nature uh, maintain the self-other differentiation, uh, have to maintain, namely the, that the empathizer retains the awareness that she's not the sufferer and thus that she, she's, she does not lose the sense of the other as the object of her emotions. Um, the empathizer has to be aware of the fact that the affective states and feelings she's experiencing belong primarily to another person. One type of emotional response to artworks that can be considered as empathic uh, takes effect at a basic, though personal, level. As we have seen, most simulationists differentiate between low-level, basic or mirror empathy, and more complex forms of reenactive or reconstructive uh, empathy. It seems to me that a low-level automatic yet not just mirroring or simulating emotional engagement with the artwork may exist. For consider the following case. One looks at Hodler's Valentine, uh, Goddarel, in her bed and sees the depicted woman as being sad. One has a direct perceptual access to the emotional and affective states expressed, to her sorrow and exhaustion, without either drawing on knowledge about the depicted woman or imaginatively reconstructing her experience in some way or projecting oneself in the depicted situation. I will refer to this type of emotional response towards depicted figures or situations as weak empathic response to pictorial artworks or moderate empathy. This is actually the first uh, response that I count as empathic. The previous, uh, in my view, was not. According to this um, idea, a person A weakly empathizes with depicted character B or depicted scene S's expressed emotions if and only if A non-inferentially perceives the depicted figures B, B's emotions or depicted scene S's expressed emotions while A is aware that one's own emotional response is related to B or S's expressed emotions. Weak empathy, uh, weak empathic response has as its outcome moderate empathy. Moderate empathy is involuntarily triggered. However, A is capable to provide an inferential justification of the emotional ascription if asked. The basic idea supports a direct perception of emotions, drawing insights from the phenomenological theories of Zahavi and Gallagher, 
and mostly for, from McDowell's direct realism and Goldie's non-inferential perceptual account of emotional states. What I suggest is, um, what I suggest here is that the viewer can sometimes connect with the fictional character in an affective way that is phenomenologically immediate. In other words, that it does not result from a conscious process of inference. What the viewer acquires from moderate empathy is limited in that it does not provide rich information or full access to the other's emotional state, but information about some basic emotion types such as fear, anger, disgust, sadness, joy, and surprise. The fact that weak empathic response to pictorial artworks or moderate empathy is non-inferential, phenomenologically immediate, does not mean that there cannot be subpersonal or non-conscious processing or mirroring underlying it. We should don't differentiate it from picking up, to which I referred previously, since the latter has the capacity to share affective states through facial and behavioral disposition seems not necessary for the occurrence of emotional response or empathy. For example, it is shown that people with Moebius syndrome, a congenital syndrome that manifests as facial paralysis, are still able to recognize others' emotional responses. Not without problems anyway, but uh, they do it. Moreover, the involuntary, non-inferential nature of moderate empathy does not mean that we cannot be mistaken in perceiving and depicted figure's emotion, uh, as we can be mistaken in seeing a rope for a snake. Learning and practice can improve one's skills in, in responding empathically to pictorial artworks. Perceiving an artworks or a depicted figure's expressed emotion is a skill that evolves over practice, uh, that evolves over practice and engagement with art. Um, in seeing this lithograph um, of, a rural, of a rural scene depicting a child sitting and selling fruits in a museum in Cyprus and not knowing anything about the story of the artist, I saw it as expressing melancholy. However, an incisive artist next to me perceived abhorrence and, and uh, sadness which he expressed in a slight facial aversion, something like that. Uh, it turned out that the artist who created the lithograph was molesting the child and he had actually described his dreadful actions in his memoirs. In a nutshell, what I'm saying, what I'm suggesting is that the skill to empathically respond to pictorial artworks is not a one-time acquisition, nor is it immutable in time. The revelation that the artist had sexually molested the child will modify our emotional response since pain and horror will arouse. The point is that even if we accept and direct perception of emotions, it cannot be denied that cognition exerts influence on the emotional response to an artwork. Uh, Jennifer Robinson talks about a process of cognitive monitoring of emotion, where after the prompt of an, emotion, of an emotional process, there is constant modifying and control of the situation. Moderate empathy provides a minimal access to the other's emotional state. Uh, I would like, however, to um, 
ask whether uh, we can acquire a sense of first personal relation or presence to the other's mental state that is an understanding from the other's own perspective, especially in relation to illness. Although emotional responses to pictures are initiated or enhanced by low-level processes and direct perception of what is depicted, a great deal of the way pictorial art emotionally affects us cannot be accommodated by them. Hence, I draw a distinction between volitional and non-volitional or automatic empathic responses. The latter, the non-volitional, include weak empathic response and involve plain physiological responses. Volitional uh, empathic responses refer to the effortful sharing of the other's emotional state as perspective taking. The first type of volitional empathic response towards depicted figures or situation uh, in the in bibliography is referred as in his shoes perspective shifting, that is Goldie's, self-oriented perspective taking by Goldie, uh, by Copland, excuse me, or identification or projection. So According to what I call perspective taking for empathic response to pictorial artworks or projection, person A empathizes with depicted character B or depicted scene S if and only if A volitionally and centrally imagines feeling, cognizing or perceiving what B feels or perceives or what oneself would feel or perceive if one were present in the depicted scene S while A maintains the awareness that B or S is the source of A's own affective state and primarily belongs, belongs to B or S. Um, this empathic response involves projection. In a less uh, technical manner of speaking, uh, the viewer imagines what she, should, she herself would feel in the depicted figure situation or if she were physically present in the scene depicted, by imagining the events, <coughs> actions, thoughts, feelings, and emotions, what Golti refers to as the narrative structure of one's own life. Thus, such imaginings involve conscious experiential awareness of the state imagined and embracing of the other's perspective of the world. Noel Carroll worries that perspective shifting ends up in putting the character in my shoes rather than putting um, myself in the character's shoes, a criticism that probably echoes Hume's discussion of projection, according to which, in putting ourselves to the other's shoes, we merely use the other as a screen upon which our mind casts our personal narrative. Although projection has taken on rather negative connotations in the discussion of empathy, mostly due to the phenomenologist's well-founded criticism, but also because it is associated with common psychological fallacies in our understanding of the others, I think that putting oneself in the other's shoes is by its very nature a form of simulative projection that we need not approach with, with disapprobation. 
In the view presented here, perspective taking for empathic response to pictorial artworks involves an imaginative projection into the depicted character situation or depicted scene in order to understand their emotional qualities. In discussing Hume's notion of projection, Ry Langton refers to the mechanisms that underlie projection as one, phenomenological yielding, two, wishful thinking, and three, uh, pseudo-empathy. In, uh, in phenomenological yielding, our own internal sentiment permits our perception of the world, as when everything looks, looks threatening to the fearful, or when food looks delicious to the hungry. In a way, we perceive the world according to our disposition and, and needs. In wishful thinking, the viewer's own emotional response to the fictional character is limited in wishing one were like that character. In the latter case, pseudo-empathy is probably the major worry regarding pers perspective shifting as projection. In the words of Langton, and I quote, it is an over-readiness to assume that one's mind is the mirror for something or someone else. In other words, projection can turn into false empathy when one fails to take into consideration the difference between one's own life uh, narrative structure and the others. Imaginative reconstruction through perspective shifting, that is the use of one's own cognitive and emotional state to simulate or imitate the mental state of the other uh, state, uh, state of mind, has been discussed as to whether it can lead to an identification of the empathizer with the fictional character, and if in the end identification is the only genuine empathic response towards uh, the other, uh, either real, fictional, or depicted. Identification involves the supposition that the empathizer is in the same type identical emotional state as the depicted figure. Having the same mental state, uh, state type is usually considered as a necessary condition. However, one could argue that there are responses we would intuitively consider as empathic that do not include the same type of emotional state, as in the case uh, that one feels furious about his friend losing his job due to unfair cut jobs, knowing that his friend is sad about the loss of his job. But then again, the former case need not pose the problem, for one could simply argue that one has a proper emotional response towards the, just, the injustice that his friend suffered. There's no need to characterize it as empathic. There's a whole discussion about pain, uh, responding to the other's pain that I will skip. And I will say that either way, what, um, what is crucial is whether and how much identification, affective matching, or isomorphism is necessary for a response to the other emotional state to be regarded as empathic. On the one hand, asking for robust identification in the personal level may be too restrictive, thereby excluding cases intuitively seen as empathic. On the other hand, accepting that empathizing with another person does not necessarily involve having the same mental type, experiences, 
uh, as of the other, um, may confuse the differences among uh, the related processes or mental states. A middle way has to be sketched so that the variation along some dimensions as intensity, duration, range of intentional objects is allowed, perhaps even allowing for minor differentiations in the type as, for example, the different kinds of fear uh, that are all responses to danger. In trying to avoid fallacies from perspective taking and pro as projection, some argue for a stricter sense of empathy where one attempts to imagine being the other in the other situation. This is a state in which, um, which I call a strong perspective taking for empathic response to pictorial artworks or immersion. According to it, person A empathizes with depicted character B if and only if A volitionally imagines being B. So, um, it is clear that this is far more demanding uh, than projection. Uh, Amy Copeland argues that this is uh, the only uh, true, genuine empathic response. Uh, however, um, I, I would like uh, to point just two things. Um, that uh, we have studies that offer important insights on the mechanism of perspective taking, but these have significant methodolo methodological uh, problems that are, um, are unresolved. These studies supposedly show that there is a differentiation between um, uh, projection and uh, perspective taking. Um, in these studies, for example, um, uh, comparing the subject's success at taking the self or other oriented perspective, the subjects were explicitly, and I quote it, asked to try to put themselves into the perspective of an observer. They were asked to imagine watching someone else, an unfamiliar individual, who is experiencing the event presented in the picture. But when you imagine um, watching someone else, you do not attempt to take the perspective of the other. You just approach her from an external point of view. Thus, what the other perspective of, of the study uh, was uh, might actually be just a type of non-perspective taking, imaginative response uh, to the stimuli. Uh, so th these are the experiments by um, uh, Der Heiden and uh, Bateson and Dissetti that have uh, similar uh, issues. So uh, in my view, to, uh, and I will close it here, uh, it is not possible um, to imagine being the other from the other's point of view and entertain the other's one's thought and feelings. Um, Uh, there is a, a lot of criticism about that uh, that draws mostly uh, in the phenomenological tradition by Richard Moran and Sartre. Um, the point is that um, if I am to imagine being the other, I must share not just her thoughts and feelings, but also 
her traits of character, intellectual traits and abilities, emotional disposition and non-rational influences. <coughs> However, even if it were possible for me to enter one's own tacit background knowledge and unconscious disposition through empathic imagination, I would instantly have distorted the other person's access to her own mental states since I would have imposed to her a kind of psychological <coughs> distance from her own thoughts and feelings. Uh, so, uh, actually, this uh, strong perspective taking starts from a distorted conception of what it amounts for one to access one's own mind. Uh, therefore, in my view, it should be uh, rejected. So, um, I will stop here and leave the rest for the discussion. Thank you.